the headlines tonight. Bill Clinton pardons ghost of West Point cadet. 44 go to eternal lockdown in Mexican melee. And CIA's beach party bombs, Arben's branded commie. Plus, coming up, we've got exclusive footage of the Queen's corgis who've started a breakdance crew to raise funds for Buckingham Palace's new roof. Those are the headlines. Remember, if news is the message, I'm the messenger you want to shoot. News bang. A taste of truth, a sip of satire. Adesistit in the storm. 1999. In a bizarre twist of history, the late Bill Clinton has pardoned Henry Ossian Flipper, the first African-American graduate of West Point. Flipper, who died in 181 AD, was accused of embezzling a small peninsula from Spain during his time as an army cadet. President Clinton, known for his centrist policies and saxophone skills, used his ghostly powers to right this wrong from beyond the Oval Office grave. Flipper's great-great-grandson, Percy Flipperson III, said, It's about time my ancestor got justice. He didn't steal no darn peninsula. He just borrowed it for a picnic. The White House declined to comment on why Clinton chose now to act, but sources close to him say he had nothing better to do in eternity. Meanwhile at West Point Academy, where Flipper once excelled at dueling and horseback yodeling, they erected a statue in his honour made entirely out of stolen silverware. 2012. Tonight, a Mexican standoff took a turn for the worse, as in Apodaca. The Los Zetas and G-Force cartel cartels clashed over who had the most colourful pyjamas at their annual slumber party. It all kicked off when Tequila Sanchez, head of the Los Marihuana gang, called Fiesta Rodriguez's sombrero gay. Fists flew faster than mules through customs, followed by machetes and small missiles. The resulting carnage left 44 dead and 70 missing with crispy skin. Amongst those to leg, it was El Guacamole, known for his guacamole-based murders. He now has a price on his head, 10 million pesos or two for fajitas night at Chiquitos. Apodaca itself is no stranger to violence, its claim to fame being murder capital of Jalisco, an accolade they won from rival city Slaughter City. This latest bloodshed will do little to improve its image as a holiday destination, unless you're into that sort of thing. 1954 1954, the year of spies and intrigue. The CIA, or as they were better known, the men in dark glasses, hatched a cunning plan to oust Guatemalan President Arbenz. Operation Washtub was launched, not to clean up after their messy agents, but to link Arbenz to the Soviets. They planted enough Soviet-made weapons in Nicaragua to start a second Cold War, hoping it would leave him out in the cold. And that's exactly what happened. The hole was discovered by some unsuspecting Nicaraguan soldiers and local fishermen who thought they'd caught something big. Little did they know it was part of a larger covert operation. Despite this evidence, the press didn't bite. Just like Seymour Butts, head of disinformation at Langley, who said... We need something juicier than this Cotswallop. Arbenz remained oblivious, busy with his radical reforms back home while his fate swung on a line like one of those fishermen's stories about the one that got away. News bang, poking holes in the balloon of lies. And now, let's turn our attention to the skies. 
with meteorological maven Shakanaka Giles, who's here to divulge the secrets of tomorrow's weather forecast. Tomorrow, in the southeast, expect a damp and dreary day, like a dog's cold nose on your cheek. The rain will be persistent, as if Mother Nature's got a leaky tap she can't be bothered to fix. Moving on to the Midlands, where it'll be a bit like a soggy sandwich, the clouds will be heavy and grey, and the rain will be relentless, like a toddler demanding attention. In the north, it'll be a bit brighter, but don't be fooled. The wind will be biting like a sharp slap across the face. It'll be cold enough to freeze your balls off if you're a brass monkey, so wrap up warm. And finally, in Scotland, it'll be a right old hoolie. The wind will be howling like a banshee and the rain will be coming down sideways. It'll be like standing in a shower with a faulty door. In summary, tomorrow's weather will be a bit of a mixed bag. So grab your brollies and your wellies and prepare for a day of soggy socks and windswept hair. And that's all the weather. In 1965. Now our special report. The year is 1965 and South Vietnam is in turmoil. Colonel Pham Ngoc Thao, along with Generals Lam Van Phat and Tran Thien Kim, attempted a coup against the military junta of Nguyen Khan. Pham Ngoc Thao, a communist sleeper agent, had infiltrated the army of the Republic of Vietnam, causing resentment towards the regime. The coup attempts led to instability and ultimately resulted in the resignation of Khan. And we turn to our correspondent Brian Bastable for further analysis. This is my war, a war of madness, a conflagration of hatred, an inferno of bloodlust. I'm speaking to you from the heart of hell, where shattered dreams are traded for death and misery is the currency. I see them now before me. Colonel Pham Gok Thao and his cohorts General Lam Van Phat and Tran Thien Kiem plotting in secret against their master Nguyen Khan. Their aim? to tear apart the military junta that has ruled South Vietnam with an iron fist since 1963. Pham Ngoc Thao is no ordinary man. He's a communist sleeper agent who has wormed his way into the very heart of the army of the Republic of Vietnam. He sows discord wherever he goes, stirring up resentment against Khan and his regime like a malevolent puppeteer pulling strings from behind the scenes. But this night will be their last as free men, for tonight they attempt to seize power in a daring coup that will shake South Vietnam to its core. The air crackles with tension as I speak. Every moment brings us closer to chaos, closer to catastrophe, closer to oblivion. Explosions echo through the darkness as gunfire rains down upon us like hailstones on Judgment Day. This is not just any battlefield, it's ground zero in a conflict that threatens to engulf us all. Yet amidst this maelstrom stand our brave soldiers, fighting tooth and nail for survival against an enemy who would see them dead or worse. And what do they fight for? Freedom, democracy, no, 
They fight for nothing more than their own lives, lives lived under constant threat from forces both within and without who seek only destruction and despair. But still they stand tall, defiant in the face of adversity, for this is their home too. And if there's one thing these men know how to do better than anyone else alive today, it's how to survive when everything around them turns sour. Very sour indeed. Brian Bastable, reporting live from Saigon. 2012. In a brutal episode that could give the Mexican drug war a run for its pesos, Apodaca, Mexico's fourth most exporting city, was plunged into chaos. The year was 2012 when Los Satas and Gulf Cartel drug cartels decided to turn the Apodaca prison into their personal battleground. The riot claimed 44 lives, but sources suggest the unofficial death toll might have been closer to 70. 37 inmates managed to escape during the melee, including a notorious leader of Los Zetas. Now let's hand you over to our reporter Ken Shit, who has been tirelessly digging up more on this blood-soaked tale. Greetings, degenerates. As we transport ourselves back to the year 2012, let's not forget the fucking carnage that went down in Apodaca, Mexico. A prison riot so brutal, it made the heads of the dead roll faster than a pair of dice in a casino. The Los Zetas and Gulf Cartel drug cartels, two gangs of psychopathic scumbags, decided to settle their scores in the most violent way possible. 44 inmates lost their lives in the chaos while 37 more escaped, including a dangerous leader of Los Zetas. It was like a scene straight out of a fucking horror movie, except this was real life. Apodaca, a city known for its industrialization and exporting prowess, became the stage for this bloodbath. And the Mexican drug war, an ongoing conflict between the government and these drug trafficking syndicates, only seemed to escalate in its brutality. The Apodaca prison riot was a turning point in the war, a testament to the savagery and ruthlessness of these criminal organizations. And as we look back on this dark chapter in history, we can't help but wonder how many more innocent lives will be lost in the name of drugs and power. This is Ken Shit, reminding you that the war on drugs is far from over and that we must continue to fight against the scourge of organized crime. Until next time, degenerates, keep your heads down and your hearts heavy. Desisted in the storm. 1999. In a remarkable turn of events, President Bill Clinton has posthumously pardoned Henry Ossian Flipper, the first African-American graduate of West Point who faced accusations of embezzlement in 1881. This unexpected act comes from the 42nd president, famed for his centrist political stance. The power to grant pardons for federal crimes is a presidential prerogative, and Flipper's case has garnered significant attention. As a soldier, engineer and author, Flipper's legacy extends beyond the controversy that marred his career. Now, to discuss this intriguing development further is our resident politics correspondent, Hardiman Pesto. I'm here in Little Rock, Arkansas, where former President Bill Clinton has just issued a posthumous pardon to Henry Austin Flipper, the first African-American graduate of West Point, who was accused of embezzlement way back in 1881. A posthumous pardon? Isn't Flipper dead? That's right, Martin. Flipper passed away over 60 years ago in 1940 at the age of 84. But Clinton felt it was important to clear his name. So Clinton pardoned a corpse? On what grounds? Well, the charges were never proven. 
and many feel Flipper was a victim of racial prejudice at the time. He was a pioneer for African-American rights. I see. And how exactly does one pardon a dead man? Uh, well, I suppose the pardon is more symbolic in nature. To recognize the injustice done to Flipper and restore his good name. This sounds like a ridiculous waste of time and taxpayer money if you ask me. Shouldn't the president be focused on the living? What's next? Pardoning Abraham Lincoln for that whole theatre disturbance back in 1865. Well, when you put it that way, I suppose it does seem a bit silly. Silly? It's downright ludicrous is what it is. The man is dead. Let him rest in peace. And let Clinton rest his pardon pen. I swear this presidential power has gone right to Bubba's head. Next, he'll be pardoning my Aunt Sally for jaywalking. Strong words indeed. It seems this posthumous pardon has stirred up quite a hornet's nest of controversy. Back to you in the studio, Martin. Hardeman Pesto there, reporting from Arkansas. Newsbang, the world's only honest broker of news. And now, Ryderboff takes us back to 1910 for the inaugural match at Old Trafford, the storied stadium of Manchester United. Ah, the year is 1910, and what a year it was. Old Trafford, that grand old lady of football stadiums in Greater Manchester, flung open her gates for the very first time. The inaugural match saw Manchester United lock horns with Liverpool. And let me tell you, it was more than just a game. It was a clash of titans in short pants and heavy boots. Now, Matt, as this did. The crowd's roaring like a lion with a splinter in its paw as the players take to the pitch. It's muddy out there. Looks like my Aunt Mabel's vegetable patch after a downpour. And they're off. The ball is bouncing around like an overexcited terrier at feeding time. Look at them go. These chaps are running harder than I did from my second ex-wife's solicitor. Yeah! Old Trafford, now known as the Theatre of Dreams, which I always thought sounded more like an opium den than a football stadium, became the largest club football stadium in all of Her Majesty's United Kingdom. A veritable coliseum where gladiators in striped jerseys do battle for glory and half-time oranges. Yeah! Association football, or soccer, to those across the pond who prefer their hands to their feet, has taken the globe by storm. 250 million players worldwide. That's enough people to fill Old Trafford about 3,000 times over. Greater Manchester played host to this historic event, a ceremonial county that's given us more than just rain and Coronation Street. Manchester United and Liverpool have since become professional football clubs, so renowned that even my grandmother knows not to call during match time. Personal anecdote? Well, back when I was knee-high to a grasshopper with dreams bigger than my father's moustache wax collection, I too graced Old Trafford with my presence. Not on the pitch, mind you. No, no. But selling Bovril from a tray around my neck. Hot, beefy drinks, I'd shout until hoarse or until Uncle Reginald would clip me round the ear hole for scaring off potential customers. And there we have it, folks. From 1910 right up until today's date, February 19th. Old Trafford stands as much more than just bricks and mortar. She's an enduring monument to sweaty shins and leather balls. Tonight, Penelope Windchime reflects on the 2006 Mexican mining disaster that claimed the lives of 65 miners. A sobering reminder of the perils and environmental implications of coal mining. In the year of 2006, a tragic gust of methane that most mischievous and flatulent of Earth's exhalations 
did beset a coal mine in Nueva Rosita, Mexico. The mine, a gaping moor in the face of our planet, operated by the Titan Grupo Mexico, was the stage for a calamity most dire. 65 miners, those subterranean sages and excavators of earthen treasures, were ensnared by an explosion as sudden as a hiccup during a requiem. The bowels of Mother Earth did rumble with sorrow as only two of her children were returned to the surface embrace. The rest remained cradled in her darkened depths, perhaps now guardians of some underground realm where coal is king and the echo of pickaxes serves as their courtly music. Let us remember these miners not just as casualties to Carbon's cruel caprice, but as valiant voyagers on the ship of industry who sailed too close to the methane maelstrom. And let this be a lesson that even as we pluck riches from beneath our feet, we must tread lightly lest we wake the slumbering dragons of fossilised wrath. So tonight, light a candle not just for illumination, but as a beacon for those 63 souls still embraced by the earthy bosom from whence we all once came. I'm Penelope Winchime, and may your thoughts be ever green. 13 Edistine, 1986. Here to delve into the whimsical tale of Soviet ingenuity and, dare I say, plagiarism, is Newsbang's resident science correspondent, Calamity Prenderville. <laughs> Well, colour me impressed. Today, we're taking a trip down memory lane to 1986, when the Soviets decided to get in on the space station game with their very own modular marvel, Mir. Now, I know what you're thinking, but calamity isn't that Russian. Well, hold on to your hats because this baby is chock full of British innovation. This magnificent monstrosity was launched into orbit with a docking node capable of accommodating not one, not two, but five additional modules. It's a bit like a Soviet version of a caravan park floating in the cosmos. Mir served as a research laboratory for all sorts of scientific experiments. I mean, who wouldn't want to conduct research in a place where you can't even open a window without risking decompression? Truly groundbreaking stuff. Now. I know what you're really wondering. Did they have tea up there? Well, I can't say for sure, but knowing the British and their love for tea, I wouldn't be surprised if they managed to sneak some PG tips aboard. After all, it's not rocket science, or is it? So here's Tamir and its quirky charm, a testament to human ingenuity and the unwavering desire to explore the great unknown, preferably with a nice cup of tea in hand. This is Calamity Prenderville from Newsbang, signing off. News bang, cutting through the bullshit with the chainsaw of facts. Twenty eleven. In a remarkable exhibition, the Belitong shipwreck has unveiled the splendor of the Tang Dynasty. This thriving era, known for its cosmopolitan culture and extensive territory, saw a ship laden with precious artifacts sink off Belitong Island. Now in Singapore, these relics serve as a tantalising glimpse into China's rich history. To delve deeper into this maritime marvel, we turn to our culture correspondent, Smithsonian Moss. 
Now at this point of the evening, we welcome listeners on FM who've just joined us. Waho, culture vultures. It's your main muse, Smithsonian Moss, and I'm here to spill the ancient tea on a shipwreck that's older than your grandma's secret tattoo. The year is 2011, and Singapore just got a little more swanky with the Belly Tongue Shipwreck Exhibition. Picture this. A ship, right? Sailing from China to Arabia, loaded with more Tang Dynasty bling than a rapper's Christmas tree. But whoopsie-daisy, it takes a dive off Belitung Island, and bam, it's a treasure piñata at the bottom of the sea. Now, the Tang Dynasty was like the OG of cosmopolitan cool. They had everything from silk undies to porcelain that could make the Queen of England spill her tea. And this ship? It was like the Amazon Prime of the Silk Road, delivering all that good good across the oceans. Fast forward a millennium or so, and the sea coughs up this ancient Alibaba loot right onto Singapore's doorstep. And let me tell you, honey, it was a cultural bonanza. We're talking gold, silver, and ceramics. Oh my. It was like a historical episode of Hoarders, and the archaeologists were living for it. The exhibition was like walking into a VIP club of the past. You had to be dead for a thousand years to get on the guest list. But once you were in, it was lit. And the artifacts? They were serving Tang Dynasty realness, giving us a peek into a time when China was basically the Regina George of the Silk Road. So there you have it, my fellow time travelers. The Belitung Shipwreck Exhibition was the throwback party of the century. And if you missed it, well... That's just a shipwreck of your social calendar. Until next time, keep your culture as fresh as a sunken treasure and your history as spicy as a Tang Dynasty drama. Waho. News bang, taking the bull by the horns of truth. And just time to glance at tomorrow's headlines. The Times. Supreme Court jab decision. States get the point. The Telegraph, Union Army's honesty ordeal, a third fall in Florida fiasco. The Guardian, Metropolitan Museum marks milestone. Two million marvels unveiled. And that's it for tonight. Remember, the news may be new, but the papers are always old. Good night, and if you dream of reading the news, make sure it's in bold. Tune in next time for more artificially intelligent hilarity. Newsbang is a comedy show written and recorded by AI. All voices impersonated. Nothing here is real. Good night. <laughs> <laughs>